Hello, friend. Come on in. My. When I said get dressed to the nines, I didn't realize we were going into the nine thousands. You look stunning. Are you ready? You're going to meet a lot of people today. I know some of them you've already fallen in love with. You can't hide it from me. <laughs> but we're going to meet the rest of them. Let's get to it. Article 6. La Rosa Blanca. And you guys head back to La Rosa Blanca. How's she looking? A little jostled. But you guys take a deep water dock. You're taking the rowboat back to the ship and you can already hear Hawthorne. You can hear their voice just ringing out over the water. Oh no. Hey, what did I tell you about that? No, take it down right now. No, I don't want to see that. And you see Roz is up there and he's got something in the rigging. But it's it's a special occasion. We have to do this. You guys are rolling up and the ladder tossed down to you as Mama Coco leans over. It's about damn time you got back. I believe the correct response is captain on board, but nice to see you too. When you get on board, I'll announce that you're on board. Let's go. Shimmy that Avalonian ass up here, Waylon. Hi, Mama Coco. <laughs> he starts climbing up. As soon as your hand comes and step on, Mama Coco's captain on deck. And everybody that is on deck immediately stops and salutes or bows or does whatever it is that they do. Patrick. Yes. Take us on a tour of the top decks. Okay. How many masts is the White Rose? The White Rose is a brig that has two masts, is square rigged, and you guys have decided that she has 17 guns? Mm-hmm. There's the railing, and then there's the support beams. I imagine that the support beams are the stems of a flower. That twisting vine kind of pattern, and then that carries almost organically into the railing as it stretches across and around the ship. On the top deck, there are plenty of wide open spaces to give that air of freedom that Jesse holds so dearly. There's ropes everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Not only are there ropes where they're supposed to be, how you normally see them on a ship, there are ropes just kind of dangling and not super loose and haphazard. There is a pattern to them. The odd thing about it is that there are ropes where there shouldn't be that don't seem to connect to everything, but all of them are meticulously placed. They all seem to have bitten put there on purpose, even if they don't have a purpose. There are barrels of supplies and things to be grabbed at a moment's notice. On some of the masts, there are a couple of places for holding weaponry to be grabbed on the fly. Yeah, like harpoon spears. No swords, per se. Everything very specifically has its place. An interesting question that I have for Evan. What wood is the ship made of? What color is the ship? It is a dark, dark brown wood of some kind. Weather-worn. Super weather-worn. I mean, she's been seaworthy for many years. Yes, she would have been built in Castile in the beginning. I also imagine that there is some sort of filigree in certain aspects of the ship, whether that be metal furnishings or like actual carvings that have had some sort of paint 
or die put into the wood that's definitely faded over time but oddly enough if you look at it in the right way it's just as vibrant as it was when it was freshly painted okay so on the top deck there's the forecastle and the afsel which is the front of the ship and the back of the ship on the afsel the back of the ship also how you see in most ships where they have a big grate and it's that big square thing that's the cargo grate it's right in front of the afsel behind the second mast right before the captain's quarters. Two staircases leading up from the left and the right is the helm, being this big wheel with the spokes out of it. But the center of the helm is a big giant carved rose, and the helm itself is made out of a rose wood. So it's beautiful and dark and vibrant, and each of the spokes has that same post pattern that the railing has. It all looks like it's made of vines that are coming out, and then they round off into leaves for where you put your hands. Behind that, it's a big turnstile anchor. It's got a quick release, which is a lever, and it just drops, and then you have to wind it back up and crank it. And there's one at the afsel, and there's one at the forecastle because you have two anchors. And as we're swinging through the ropes with Roz, as he's getting everything ready and taking care of any stray lines that need replacing or making sure that all the sails are tied properly, we're going to the forecastle. There is a set of quarters. One houses Cosette, the purser, and the other houses the bosun, Charles. And the forecastle is the same kind of open concept where it's the two staircases leading up. But at the forecastle is a harpoon guns, right, Jesse? Yeah, there are two harpoons on the port and starboard side of the bow. It's like the third of the size of a cannon in terms of diameter. You load a harpoon in. It's got a line attached to it. You fire it. A more like lever, like trebuchet catapult-ish. The way how I imagine these is it's like a seat. You sit in it and you can turn it. It's more versatile than a cannon how any of the guns on a spaceship work where you sit down in it and can move it literally anywhere. The LAAT gunship of the Republic. They're big ass fuck you harpoon. Exactly. And we follow the camera to the bowsprit where Luciana is perched right at the very tip. And as the camera's going down, what do we see as the figurehead, Jesse? It is that of a woman and outstretched around her arm like a snake is the the plume of a rose. Love that. What's she wearing? It's relatively indiscernible. I would say most of the torso leads into the wood of the ship. It only starts to get like more detailed as as it gets closer to her holding the rose forward. Awesome. That's beautiful and gorgeous and I love it. Down where her dress actually meets the rest of the ship is the first set of portholes for the second deck. And that's where the camera goes through. And that is where the galley is. We see boots moving around, grabbing pots, and they're all hanging on a wall within easy access. The oven that he uses is a charcoal kiln that they've fitted in. It's like encased in metal so that it doesn't set anything on fire, obviously. And he's tending to the coals, rolling up his sleeves and pushing something in there with a big giant paddle, which is just a repurposed oar. 
I imagine that Boots has some sort of small, tiny room, almost like a cupboard. It's just big enough for him to lie down in, but his boots stick out. (laughs) Him and his cooks are cleaning up fish. You guys would be setting out for a journey, so they're actually taking inventory of all the food that they're bringing on the ship. So breads, crackers, lots of pickled items, vinegar, there's some aspect of Waylon's job that he has on the ship is making sure that there is enough dried fruit that has been stocked, obviously, to stave off scurvy, but to also feed his sweet tooth. There's a crate of oranges and limes and lemons. The camera's going through and we're seeing all of that. And the galley is wide and open, much like the rest of the ship. Jeffy likes to keep most of everything wide and open. And there are at least four porthole windows in the galley itself. So there's constantly light. There's some of them are open right now because you're in harbor. You can hear the seagulls. There are deckhands and cook's mates already prepping food for everything. There are three large slabs of driftwood that have been repurposed as dining room tables with bench seats or small little barrels that are bolted to the floor. If anything isn't chained to the wall or bolted to the floor, it is moving with the ship. As we're going through down into the cannon deck, which is the second deck, we can see the stairs that lead down from the main deck. And as it's going through, we can see all of the cannons in their little cubbies. All of the cubbies are closed right now. Jory is busy at work with his helpers cleaning, making sure that all the shot is there. We see Waylon stepping down from the main deck to go to the powder room because that is your job as master at arms. You're not only checking the powder and making sure that it's dry. One of the more tedious parts of your jobs is making the pouches, like the little powder pouches. Mm -hmm. That is what you and a couple of your smaller deckhands are doing, mostly powder monkey kids. Absolutely. Anything to do with tending to the weaponry or any of the ammo or powder, Waylon finds incredibly soothing. The repetitive motion is just incredibly relaxing to him. Yeah, there's a place set up near the powder room for you or one of your other lesser deckhands to start making powder pouches. Not only for you, but for the armory, which, by the way, is right next to the powder room. Now, your powder room, I feel, isn't as open as most other powder rooms. The designers of the ship were a little bit more intelligent about how the powder room was built, and it was almost built in sections, with each of the dividing walls being either reinforced or made of wrought iron, so that if anything were to happen and any fires were to be set off, in the powder room, it wouldn't automatically just set a chain reaction that would blow the entire thing. So if an explosion were to happen in one section of the powder room, there would be some sort of insurance policy that made sure that the fire just wouldn't spread. Yeah. Okay. I really like that idea. And I feel like Sedona, knowing that part of the danger of owning a pirate ship and going after ATC ships is that if your powder room sets fire, you're just fucking done. So as we're going into the powder room to take a peek, we see that the walls are just thick, 
thick sheets of metal and that the door has a latch that completely seals it off, which makes it waterproof, airproof. So if a fire were to start, it would starve it of oxygen. You'd lose all that powder in that room, but it wouldn't be devastating. And your shot is separate from the powder room. You don't keep shot next to the powder. Wayland, please describe your quarters for the camera and our listeners. Wayland's quarters is the armory. So there are two parts to the armory, one of which is where all of the weapons are. There are racks and racks of weapons, all neatly in rows, all of which is very secured, with clasps that click in to hold them to the wall, something that you can easily unclick, grab, go. There is one big pathway that you can walk down. There is an entire polishing station. Rags with grease and oil on them that are all kept very organized. Even though they're kind of tossed about, there are places to toss them about. Like a towel rack that Wayland hangs things on as he works. And he has his whole workbench with spare parts, with different screws and bolts and everything. It's a full mechanics workbench. There's a hammering station if he needs to straighten things out or bend them back into place. Um, And that is one half of the room. The other half of the room is separated by a large Avalonian flag. The Avalonian flag is blue and white. It's half blue, half white. And the images are the reverse color on the other side. So if it's the white part of the flag, the image is blue. If it's the blue part of the flag, the image is white. And down the middle is the grail, and there are three crowns, one on top of the grail, one on the left side, one on the right side. It's a flag in two pieces, and if you part the middle of the flag, it's all weighted down at the bottom, you will enter Wayland's living quarters, which is oddly sparse. There is a bed in the corner, more guns, but these are his personal weapons. And while he keeps everything in pristine condition, These guns look brand new. They are perfect. The wood is kept freshly oiled. It looks like it has just come off of the craftsman's workbench. They are absolutely perfect in every way, shape, and form. He's got his own little personal workbench in, like, his his side of the corners. And we'll fill in through. I love it. Hawthorne... I think they just have a hammock and some tools in a chest. They don't strike me as a person that wants a room because then it's just more upkeep. Do like the idea that Hawthorne doesn't have a room, but has a work station. And there is an understanding between Hawthorne and Wayland. You don't go into my workspace. I don't go into yours. A very friendly understanding. I feel like at one point there was a time where there was a hammer on the workbench of Hawthorne and Waylon went to reach for it. I know better. Just feel Hawthorne's glare. They're a yard away and on the upper deck, but I can still feel them staring at me. Touch my shit, Waylon. Ah, burns. Why does it burn? And as I was saying before, how things are rolling and moving. Jory has a channel that has three smaller cannonballs and they clink together. It's essentially a Newton's cradle. To Jory, it helps him sleep at night. 
Jory sleeps in a hammock in the middle, in between the two masts. That's his room. He sleeps on the cannon deck. When given the option by Jesse, Jory politely declined and said, nah, just sleep with my girls and make sure that they're all set and ready to go at a moment's notice. And having a door in between us, just not going to work for me, boss. He refers to his cannons as the girls. If you ask him, each one of them has a name and a story. All 17 of them. <laughs> He's such a weirdo and I love him. As the camera's going around there underneath the apsel, we actually see all of the hammocks in the back. Roz also sleeps in a hammock. More often than not, you'll actually see him perched on the crow's nest. While he is master of tops and he does rope things, he also just really enjoys being as high as possible. Sometimes you can catch him sleeping up there. Agnes, she doesn't have quarters. She's a cabin girl, but she doesn't hang with the rest of the crew. And what I mean by that is in the area with the hammocks. So she has a, not a smuggling compartment where it's hidden, hidden. Do we have smuggling compartments? Yeah, you guys do have smuggling compartments. There is an advantage that, that grants you a smuggling compartment that is undetectable unless you know where it is. It just means that I can spend danger points to find those smuggling compartments. Whereas with the advantage, I can't. There are doors that lead to other cabins. Some of them are open, some of them are closed. We can see through one of them, which has a single porthole in it, a bunch of dangling ribbons and fish hooks. And there's a big fishnet on the wall. And we see silks and all sorts of different colors just hanging around in that room. That's Mama Coco's room. And she always keeps her door open. And as we're going through the back of the ship, we can see the sick bay, which is Klaus's area. He has a couple of surgeon's mates helping him get new sheets and set the bed and make sure that all of his tools are clean. And he's sitting at the table and he's got his sleeves are all rolled up and there's a bowl of some kind of something uh, that he dips his hands in every once in a while and he grabs a tool and cleans it meticulously. And we can see like the shine off of his spectacles as he's looking at them. We turn around and back through and that's when we go down into the bilge. Bilge is where you keep all of the rest of the cargo and any cargo that you get from either pillaging ships and that is Ursa's territory. As soon as the camera goes down there it goes completely dark from the contrast. There is a couple of special windows down here. They're way, way, way at the top where the sea meets the ship because the bilge is completely underwater. So there are these long, narrow windows that every once in a while will let light in, but most of the time it's filtered through water. The camera just sees very briefly this lumbering, huge, gigantic form. As Ursa turns around, we can see the red eyes turn with it and we see that light trail. And then the camera it jumps and like turns the other way. <laughs> Did you say our camera bird got spooked? Camera bird got spooked. <laughs> oh, incredible. And then it flies up the staircase back up to the tops, misses Roz. And we realize again that the camera is Luciana. And Luciana is flying back up to the Afsol, where the captain's quarters opens. From the outside, there is this really gorgeous carved cuckoo clock house and Luciana flies through the hole and we see her little quarters yeah perfect it's very cozy very cozy very comfy 
There's a lot of down in here. And when she flies in, a couple of little silvery feathers hoof up in her little tiny nest, which is just ribbons and strings and pieces of rope and shiny fabrics. Literally anything that she could find on the ship that she's turned into a little tiny nest. And she gets all comfy, cozy, floofs up and tucks her beak into her chest there. And then the camera moves out. And you notice that there's something odd on the ship in a good way. You see that Cosette is actually, she's holding her clipboard and pointing her quill at people and moving them and commanding them around what appears to be a metal basin that has a bunch of sticks and brambles and some hay and stuff inside of it. You, over there. Good, move that there. We, Raz. He dangles down in a loop in his rope. See, you're going to need to get out of the rigging, please. But I'm going to need you to be on the floor. But this is my home. I, I, I have the. Don't give me any lip. And he touches down on deck. Oh, the planks are so cold. Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> and everybody seems to be gathering around this basin. Only person that's missing right now is Ursa. As you come on deck, Cosette actually comes up to you, Jesse, and says, "Everything appears to be in order for the charter." Not quite. We are missing one. We. Uh, oui. Roz is like, I'll get it. <laughs> runs downstairs and you hear the pitter-patter of his bare feet on the planks and Mama Coco comes up to you, Jesse. We're gonna light the fire. I'm gonna say a couple words and then put the blood in the fire and when you do, you say your name. That's it. According to what Cosette says, your name will appear on the charter. And she looks at Waylon seeing the blood on his coat. I guess you could just wring your coat out. She hands the charter to you. It's blank right now. The only thing it says is La Rosa Blanca on the top. Jesse, you fill out all the articles because it's your ship, your rules. Before we begin, if any of you do not agree with any of these rules on this charter, you speak up now and that is in order. Remember, before we was a crew. Now, while we still are a crew, this binds us a bit more intimately. We are family. We work together. We help each other out. We reap what we sow. Do I make myself clear? A lot of people say I. Roz comes up the stairs and says, See, Capitan! Come on. It's all right. I know, it's a little bright out here. Come on. And you hear the stairs creak as this large shape comes up from the top steps and lumbers over in front of the basin and sits. Now, sitting, Ursa is seven and a half feet tall. Jesus. You cannot see her face. You cannot see her hands. Any skin that would be exposed is covered with this thick, heavy sheepskin. It covers all of her. Miss Bloodnitch, welcome to the top decks. There is a contented grumble from her, but nothing else. Jesse looks around to everybody. Jory is staring slack-jawed at Ursa, jaw wide open. Jesse looks to Wayland and gives him a look. Wayland slaps Jory on the back of the head. You're catching flies. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I ain't never seen someone so big. I... 
And you're going to keep your mouth shut about it if you know what's good for you, Jory. Yep. That means now. Yes, sir. You're writing out the articles now. Um, as soon as you're done, you hand it to Mama Coco and she takes it. While you were talking and while they were going to get Ursa, Mama Coco just vanished. She comes back and there is a painted skull on her face in white with red petals. Normally you see silken ribbons in her locks, but there are thorns, brambles woven in her locks. And there is a big giant rose bound up in a circle in her hair. The white paint is not just on her face, it's on her arms as well. And they're they're thorns, they're brambles. Uh, She takes the charter and she lays it on a table next to the metal basin. She takes a stone and another flat one and strikes it and sets the fire in the basin. So the fire roars to life and starts to crackle. The brambles start to twist and turn and be eaten by the flames. Mama Coco has a metal pin that she takes out of her hair and holds it up. And she says, I, we all got our own reasons for why we took to the sea. Our own devils that we carry with us. But from now on, any devils we bring also take passage on the rose. And our reasons for being at sea begin here. Mama Coco pricks her finger. The camera watches her dark hand fold into the fire as a drop of blood falls. My name is Verasin Rococo. I am a hand that tends the rose. The pin moves to a delicate, tiny hand. It belongs to a young woman who is perfectly petite in every way. She brushes an intricate braid away from her cheek and her laced gold and white sleeves shimmer in the moonlight. She turns the pin as she would hold a quill and studies its tip over her gold-rimmed spectacles, a serious stare forming in her pale green eyes. Her red-painted lips form a hard line as she pricks the tip of her ring finger. She takes a small step, then a heavy step, and slides her hand in and out of the fire as if she were sealing an agreement. Cosette Marisol, I am a hand that gilds the rose. The pin then gets passed to a rugged, scarred hand. The man holding the pin smiles, and we see it reflected in his dark green eyes, and recognize that smile because we see it so often at the bucket of blood from a younger sibling. He runs his free hand through his chestnut hair, almost a nervous gesture, and sweeps it where it naturally sits before pricking his middle finger and stepping up to the fire. Charles Radford, I'm a hand that culls the thorns off the rose. The pin is then laid into a cloth, cleaned meticulously, and held in an expert but careful hand. The shine of the moonlight flares on lenses that perch upon the nose of a middle-aged man. His bright blue eyes and the slick of his short black hair seem to catch the moon, and hold its light. His long white coat only further serves to make him a beacon to outshine the fire. His hand sweeps over the flames. Klaus Schalman Fraulich, I am the hand that heals the rose. The pin moves on to a strong, steady hand. 
It is tapped a few times on the back of the opposite one as brown eyes look at it, almost as if judging whether it should be a good fit or not. There is a smirk hiding in their shadowed stubble. Those eyes widen in alarm as a flaming ash flies from the fire, and it is snatched out of the air before it has a chance to fly up into the canvas. They scoff, put their hand directly into the flames as if to scold the coals. Hawthorne, I'm a hand that cultivates the rose. The pin twirls and spins between the fingers of a tanned, agile hand. Strands of brown hair dance in the wind before deep hazel eyes. The man can barely contain the tune on his lips as he salses towards the fire, tossing the pin up and around and backwards and forwards and frontways and sideways between his hands. He suddenly raises them with a flare above the fire. Rusco Mariana Isabella Cortez de Atabea. I am a hand that tends the vines of the rose. Then the pin is clamped by a pair of long, sharp nails from blackened fingers. Though we cannot see any of her features beneath the heavy sheepskin that covers her, crimson eyes shine with the reflection of the pin. Her hand nearly encompasses the basin as she hovers above the flames. Ursa speaks, but behind her voice is a pained growling that nearly drowns it out. Ursa, blood niche, soil, rose. The pin is then dropped into a pair of soot-stained, shaking hands. The boy clears his throat and runs his bare arm over his face, smearing more soot to cover his grass-green eyes. He almost trips over himself as he approaches the basin and mumbles something along the lines of, Which finger don't I need? He decides on his pinky and flicks his hand through the fire, a grimace on his face as if he might get burned and doesn't wish to. <clears throat> Jory McFluhan. I'm a hand that protects the rose. The pin is then put into a large, heavily calloused palm. The mountain of a man it belongs to grins, his blonde beard bouncing as he laughs to himself. He pricks his palm and touches his hand directly on the coals. If the fire burns him, there is not a shred of pain in his northern blue eyes. Beric Bjornrunson, I am the hand that feeds the rose. As it is handed down to a small form, the pin is snatched by a pale but freckled hand. The camera lingers on it as it zooms out. We see a very young woman's face, stern and shadowed by a mess of burnt red curls. Her eyes are as green as the highlands she hails from, but they stare at the pin. A ridge furrows her red brows, and she seems to be struggling with something internally. When all eyes turn to her, she looks up to meet them. The pin stabs hard, and the blood is flicked into the fire. Angora Macoon, Bud of the Rose. Who was that just now? Agnes. A look of acknowledgement from Wayland. And then the pin is handed to the captain. There is a tiny flash of silver and white that alights upon the tip of the needle, flies into the fire, right around the entire crew, and back on Jesse's hat. All the while, there is a twittering. Luciana seems very pleased with herself. Oh, 
Jesse hands it over to Wayland. Wayland looks at it, puts it in his other hand, and just takes some blood from underneath his heart where the dagger went in. My name is Wayland Greywall. Tommy Nafert del Rosa Blanca. And I put my hand into the fire. And I will pass it back to Jesse. He takes a little needle. For the first time, you see him take off one of his gloves. He takes off his left glove, pricks it, finger over the fire, and waits for a single drop. I am Jesse Galiel Camilo de la Rosa Nacanza, and I am part of the White Rose. As soon as your blood drops into the fire, the fire turns white hot, flares up, and then dies. The charter on the table in white script as if light is being etched. All of the signatures show up in the name that you spoke. And Cosette walks over and picks it up and holds it out for all of us to see. It is done. La Rosa Blanca is true once again. As soon as the ritual is done, Agnes turns around and goes to work. She does not stay to reminisce or anything. Jory actually tries to stop her and so your name's Angor, and she walks right past him. Wayland puts a hand out to Jory to stop him, I... and shakes his head. All right. Shall we set sail? Not yet, but soon. Mama Coco is looking at the dead basin and sighs contentedly to herself that everything went well and nothing strange happened. Ursa stands up, nods her head to the captain, and turns around and lumbers back downstairs. Jesse nods with a slight wink. Roz is serenading Ursa as she's walking back downstairs. It was so wonderful to see you up here. I wish you could spend more time up here. I could show you my world. It's so beautiful up here. And she's laughing. You just hear this deep-throated laugh from Ursa as she lumbers back downstairs. I could show you my world. Come up out of the basement. <laughs> <laughs> And everybody is standing there and looking at the flames as it's dying or chatting quietly amongst themselves. And Charles is actually, he's the one that's left last other than you two. And he's staring at the smoke as it's leaving. You're right there, Charles. Oh, For the longest time, it was just me and Charlotte after our parents died. We didn't have much. I was... And he looks down at his knuckles, and you can see the scarring from many, many fights. I was just trying to make it so, you know, she didn't have to work as hard. She didn't have to, and uh, I never thought that I'd be part of a family again. And I'm real glad to have you as a brother, Wayland. And you, Jesse, the captain. It's really an honor, <laughs> and uh, I couldn't be happier. I just I hope what I'm doing is right. Not for me, but for her. Your sister loves you very much. Oh, don't I know it. She's proud of the work that you're doing. So am I. Captain, he, uh, <clears throat> best be, uh, making sure these people are doing their jobs, right? Charles, he reaches his hand out. You're part of the ship, part of the crew. Nice, sir. Charles actually gives you a hug. It's real brief. It's one of those manly hugs. He tries to let go and Jesse just holds him. You're not going anyway, you salty bastard. Mm. I don't want to stain your nice coat. 
<laughs> you couldn't even if you tried. <laughs> he does cry a, a little bit, clears his throat a couple of times, and <clears throat> uh, brushes the tears out from under his eyes just really quickly before anybody really sees, except for Waylon because he's got fucking eagle eyes. He sees everything. Oh, yeah. And Roz, at that moment, leans down from the ropes, holding his hands next to his cheeks. It's so beautiful, I could cry. And Charles actually grabs the rope and brings him down face to face. I'm gonna give you a reason to cry. Get going! And lets him go. <laughs> lets him go. <laughs> you heard him, Roz. Hi, Capitan! And he gets back in the rigging. And Charles goes about his duties. Waylon just gives him a pat on the shoulder as he's going. He holds out his hand to you to clasp, and you feel a familiar little trinket in there as he passes you a maple candy. Waylon takes it. Everybody goes back to work. Jesse looks to Waylon. Before we set off, I'd like to find Miguel once more. Hey, now we've got a bit of a conversation to finish. Waylon, as you're stepping away towards the rowboat, a, a large hand comes on your shoulder. And fear just drains through Waylon like, oh no. And you hear, Waylon, I believe the infirmary is down below Zek. Yeah? You're going the wrong way. And he turns you around. Jesse, I'll catch up. How are regular wounds healed? Those heal over time? Normal wounds heal immediately after combat is over. Uh, any dramatic wounds need an hour with a doctor. Got it. Jesse's gonna ready the rowboat. He's gonna wait for Waylon, but also have the clouds disappeared at this point. Yeah, the clouds have dissipated. Jesse's gonna go up to the helm, the back of the ship, and just look up at the stars. So Agnes is there. Oh. She's working. She's got ropes in her hand, and she's coiling them up and winding them. But she's leaning so that her face is angled up at the sky, like she's looking at the stars. You hear her speak as you're staring at the stars. If I can speak freely, sir. I Agnes, permission to speak freely. I hate my name. Why? My father gave it to me. He expected me to be more than I was, more than I could be. It's not for me. Never was. So, I left. You're not the only one who has to live up to a name. Names obviously are passed down, of course. Some hold more weight than others. I, um, I lost my mother when I was a bit younger than you are now. The name Nakansa is a lot to live up to. I wouldn't say I'm much like her, but I think I'm all right with that. You said names have weight. I know how heavy that can be. I know you do. So, don't let that name drag you down. Or the rest of us? I don't. Good. Agnes, you are essential to this crew. If you say so. You are on my crew. You are part of my family. I do not lie to family. Aye. Your name is extremely important to me. The name that you have is only as strong as the power you give it. And whatever power you give it is your own. Not your families, not your parents, nobody's but your own. Aye, sir. And she finishes coiling the rope, puts it away, 
thanks for taking me. And walks past you without another word. Jesse looks back up to the stars. Does not smile. Hmm. Looks at as many individual becks of light that he can. And he thinks, and he tries to remember the name of every good pirate he's ever met and helped. Eventually, Wayland, you are released from Klaus's care. And by care, I mean rigorous healing. He has opened those wounds again, giving you a lot of guff for cauterizing them yourself. This is the CrossFit of medical practice. Klaus, they were bleeding. I had to do something about it. Otherwise, it was going to just... I was going to be wearing a red shirt. Oh, yeah, Valand. Red is your color, absolutely. Thanks, Klaus. Very much. Oh, you're very welcome. And he slaps you on the back. <clears throat> Jesse's now hovering over the helm, <laughs> looking at this exchange. He grabs Roland by the shoulders and turns him around <sighs> to face the captain. I must agree while I see you've returned from Klaus's expertise hands. Hey. Yavo, Captain. Valen is ready for service. When the next time that Valen gets stabbed, we'll make sure not to use fire to close them. Yeah, no. Especially something out of this world, yeah? Aye. Right, to be fair, I would have left them in until I saw you. It's not beat a dead horse, Valen. Well, it's a good thing you enjoy sweets, because you've lost a lot of blood, and you need to replenish that. Also, no grog. Water only. Your cauterization has proved no match for me, yeah? Jesse walks on the stairs to the deck. You're right. Oh, God. I can't decide if I feel better or worse, but I'm probably in better shape. Jesse grabs his arm All right. and pulls his sleeve up a little All bit, right. pulls his glove off. He pinches his arm and he says, Well, and you feel fine to me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a good one, Captain. That's a good one. <laughs> and Klaus is laughing as he's going down the stairs back to the sick bay. Come on, you sack of shit. Let's go. All right, all right, all right. Aye, aye, Captain. You guys head out. Cosette goes with you because she needs to bring the copy of the charter to the bucket of blood. Cosette walks a little slower than you guys because of her peg leg. I'll just meet you at the bucket of blood. I'm sure you'll get there before I do. We walk slower. No worries. I'm also still healing, so you know what? I could use a slower pace. Not every night in Aragosta is a race, Cosette. We. Oui. Jesse appreciates being able to slow down and appreciate the streets a little more, especially at night. Since the storm has messed a bunch of stuff up, a lot of people are just cleaning up from the storm. So they're writing things, they're fixing their shutters. There's a lot of people actually out and about right now. As you're walking up to Miguel's house, you see Raul sitting outside fixing one of the shutters. Good evening. Hello, Raul. You guys holding up all right? We. Cosette perks up and she says something in Montaigne and Raul smiles and says something back in Montaigne to her and they both laugh. Oh, I don't mind keeping this gentleman company. Feel free to take as long as you like. We. Raul says something in Montaigne and she snickers behind her hand and sits down as Raul is fixing one of the shutters. Miguel is inside. He is mopping up some of the water that has come in through the open windows with a cloth rag. And he sits up on the floor. And, oh, hello. I did not expect you to be back. In Castilian, Jesse says, Good evening, my friend. It's good to see you. He 
brightens up and says, I didn't know you speak Castilian. Why didn't you open with that? Jesse chuckles a little. It's been a little while since I've practiced, but, you know, my mother taught me. Your accent's a bit off, but that's all right. I'll forgive you. And he switches back into old Than. And for the sake of your companion, I will not speak in a language he does not understand. I appreciate it. (laughs) But whatever makes you folks more comfortable. I, unlike Raul, do not enjoy complimenting people in a language they don't hear. How about insulting them? Because I'm pretty sure what Cosette was saying outside was definitely about either one of us. That is for them to tell you? I I do not understand, Monte. It's fine. How are you holding up? Winded, but well. I, um, I wanted to thank you. We're heading back out tomorrow, but I figured I'd come find you tonight, since we'll be leaving early in the morning. I wanted to thank you as well. If it wasn't for you, I think Raul and I would have made out worse for wear. I don't know. I think the Bortia could have managed. Against people? See. Si. Against ghosts? That was very difficult. You don't happen to have any more insight on that, do you? The ghosts? Aye. Uh, I imagine you haven't run into any Rahuri during your travels. In Rahuri, he says, yes, I, I have. So a look of recognition washes over Miguel's face, and Miguel looks at Wayland, who appears to be very confused. Uh, we, mm, I can't say there's something similar in Avalon. It's, it's a tad different. Senor, it is very common here for there to be ghosts. The Rahuri, the native people of the Atabean, live alongside their ancestors and their deceased. It's rumored that you can go to the land of the dead to speak to the king of the dead, to then ask your ancestor for guidance or help in an endeavor that you're doing and call their spirit to aid you. I'm not actually sure how much truth there is in this. I can't decide whether or not living alongside your dead relatives is kind of nice or kind of creepy. It toes the line. Personally, it is a little of both for me. I am from Castile, and we do celebrate our deceased in a different way. Uh, They have a day to them, Dia de los Muertos, where we honor our dead. And that is the one day that we can commune with them and ask for advice. The Rahuri can do it all the time, and it toes the line for me as well. Anyway, ghosts are very common here. In Aracosta? No. I have not seen any Rahuri ghosts. Unless, of course, there is a seeker that's different. The person that they are with is called a seeker. But they then have to return the spirit. They can't just meander about. Otherwise, terrible things happen. What did the ghosts look like? Were they skeletal or were they full-formed but spirits? They were full-formed but spirits. Any nationality that could be determined? Ambiguous. Now, I have never seen ghosts that color before. The ghosts here are green, mostly. Sometimes yellow, but never red. That's a bit concerning to me. (sighs) I don't have much insight for you. We can keep an eye on our during our travels. Hopefully continue looking into it. Well, I'm not exactly sure where we're heading off to after this, but hopefully somewhere where I could try to get some clues and some answers as to where my mother's while we're here, we might as well take that chest, because I don't know about you, but I didn't grab it on the way out. I don't think any of us thought to grab it at that moment. And he gets up and walks around and grabs the thing and brings it back. Thank you. Anytime. I hope to come by and learn something from you. I would be honored to teach you. 
next time I'm in Aragosta. How's that? See, si, like that a lot. I think the both of us could benefit from that. Although I believe Wayland would learn better from Raul, and Raul's looking at Wayland up and down, nods approvingly, raises an eyebrow at him. <laughs> Never stop learning, I say. Good. I have a lot to teach. You can always teach an old sea dog new tricks. That you can. Cosette is now standing at the door, tapping her clipboard. <clears throat> I think it might be time. Jesse reaches his hand out for Miguel. Miguel pulls you in for one of those handshake, still holding hand hug, and says in your ear, Good luck on your endeavors, yes? In Castilian, he whispers back, Thank you. Pray I find her. May you go with God. He says that in Castilian and lets you go. I'll shake Raul's hand as well. Raul also pulls you in for a hug, but it's one of those still holding your hand, holding you to the side, and says, This hook thing you have. Ah, uh, yes. There's quite the story behind it. I'll have to let you in on one day. Oh, I would love that. Wayland well, washes and <laughs> <laughs> shakes you a little brusquely and walks over to Miguel and takes his hand. You're both very welcome to come back at any time. Jesse tips his hat to them. Thank you. Much appreciated. To the bucket of blood, I suppose. To the bucket of blood. Adetokumbo is back. He's helping Charlotte clean up the blood on the floor. And he looks up at the door. Sorry for the appearance. Ah, oh, it's just you. Sorry to disappoint you, big man. I'm never disappointed when I see you. <laughs> and he sees Cosette. Oh, no. What did I do? You did not do anything. Not yet. We have business. Takes off his apron and puts it on the table. Anything you want, Miss Marisol. We have a chat here. Hmm? Oh. He takes it and brings it over to the wall. Uh, may I? He smiles warmly and hands it to you. Bow means. And takes a coffin nail and hands it to you, and a hammer as well that he takes out of his back pocket. And he brings over a small little stepladder so that you can put it up next to your mother's, which is up a little higher. There's a nice open space for it, and he places it up just so, places the nail, starts hammering it in. The camera follows the head of the hammer as it hammers into the nail. And we see La Rosa Blanca. Each hammering comes back further and we see all of the articles. And the last hammer, we see all of the names signed at the bottom. Then the camera pans back to the wall, looking at Jesse's face as he's nailing it. And then it pans down to the rest of you guys. Cosette looks satisfied and appreciative of what she's seeing. Adetokumbo looks like a proud dad. He's just beaming. Charlotte is holding her hands together in awe and wonder because she's never seen a charter be put up before. And she's standing next to Wayland. Eventually she gets so excited that she wraps her arms around your arm and is yanking slightly. And it's just like, look, 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 look at it. It's so pretty. Wayland rustles her hair. Hi. It's a thing to behold. His eyes drift down the charter to his name and he looks at his name there's a moment of deep pride and satisfaction specifically the last part of his name and he'll glance over at the other charter and then back to the white rose and just 
big old smile across his face as he puts his hand over Charlotte's hand as she's grabbing onto him. Jesse, as he's crawling down the, the stepladder, he says, you know, that's not technically my full name. <laughs> There's more. I am missing Isandro, Hawea, Fanibara, Finnegan, Bicari, Alaya, Irenio, Riviera, Omari, Jean-Baptiste, and Sedona. Waylon smiles on the last part and then goes, wait, hang on a second. Finnegan? <laughs> he points at his mother's charter and it's all the names on her charter. I was raised by these people. Oh, I. Charlotte is pointing happily at Charles's name. She's like, look, 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 my brother's name is up there. He hops down and he gives the stool back to Dedekumbo. Wait a minute. What's, what's it doing? Cassette's attention is immediately turned and Adetokumbo is very grim-faced seeing what's going on. And you look, the charter that you just put up and the charter next to yours, which both have La Rosa Blanca on them, blend together and become one charter. However, as that's happening, the names from the old charter are being erased one by one until there are only three names left. Isandro, Jean Baptiste, and the last one is Sedona's name. Oh, Sedona's name, which was the captain's signature, is no longer because it is your captain's signature that is at the top. Jesse. Your mother's charter is no longer there. There is now a blank spot. I ain't never seen anything like that before. How is that possible? I don't know. What happened to the other names? Some of them died. They were old. Right. Waylon's just gonna stare at Jesse. Double check that Charlotte's alright. Charlotte is slack-jawed, trying to understand what just happened. Looking from Idetokumbo to Jesse, back to Idetokumbo, and then up to you for some kind of reassurance. And I'm just going to kind of grip her hand tight, shrug, and then look back at Jesse. Then that means... And he looks over at Jesse, and the camera looks at Jesse. Jesse, are you staring at your mother's name on the charter? Oh, yeah. He is pale as fuck. He's, he's as pale, if not more pale, than he was when he met Maeve. He looks like he's seen a ghost, let alone three. Jesse removes his hat and bows at the wall in reverence and just turns and walks out of the bucket of blood. As soon as he exits the door, he puts his hat back on and he lifts his head back up and he's full stride. There is a visibly strong gust that acts as a tailwind behind Jesse right now. Gazette wastes no time in following after you. Oh, I imagine that she's ahead of me. <laughs> The camera watches Wayland exit the bucket of blood and then Cosette hurrying to try and catch up and looks back inside and makes a quick wave to the other two, hurries after Jesse and the camera lifts up to see the flags that are outside of houses, any shutters that are closed rattle slightly as Jesse passes. Free cloth waves in a, a bit of an aggressive breeze as Jesse heads down towards the docks and we leave off with the camera looking at the moon. Yes. 
The adventure truly begins now, wouldn't you agree? So, now that we've introduced a little bit of everything, I think now's a good time for another Notes with the Narrator. Join me next time with special guests Sam and Evan and Patrick as we talk about stories and creating the ship. And of course, the adventure continues in Article 7. We'll see you either way. Bye, friend. Be safe and well.